Hello, and welcome back to Off the Deaton Path. I'm Stan Deaton with the Georgia Historical Society, and we welcome you to this podcast for September 28, 2023. We are broadcasting this week from the Strange Career of Eminent Historians Department here at the Georgia Historical Society on the 15th floor of the Jepson House overlooking beautiful Forsyth Park in downtown Savannah. My guest this week on the podcast is Dr. James Cobb. Jim Cobb is the B. Finnessy Spalding Distinguished Professor of History Emeritus in the Department of History at the University of Georgia. He is a native of Hart County, Georgia, and received his bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. from our flagship university, the University of Georgia, where he studied under the direction of Newman Bartley. Jim has had, as his title suggests, a very distinguished career as one of our very best historians of the American South. Among many awards and honors, he has served as president of the Southern Historical Association, received a Governor's Award in the Humanities in 2015, and was inducted into the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame in 2017. He has written or edited over a dozen books, including The Most Southern Place on Earth, The Mississippi Delta and the Roots of Regional Identity, published by Oxford University Press in 1992, Georgia Odyssey, A Short History of the State, published by the University of Georgia Press in 1997 and a second edition in 2008, Away Down South, A History of Southern Identity, also published by Oxford in 2005, and The South and America Since World War II, published again by Oxford University Press in 2011. His most recent book, and the one that he is here with me today to talk about on this podcast, is entitled C. Van Woodward, America's Historian, published last year in 2022 by the University of North Carolina Press, a biography of arguably the most influential and important historian of the American South in the 20th century. Woodward was the author of many books and influential essays, including three that were enormously important, Tom Watson, Agrarian Rebel, published in 1938, Origins of the New South, published in 1951, and The Strange Career of Jim Crow, first published in 1955. My conversation with Jim Cobb begins now. Jim Cobb, welcome to our podcast. Well, thank you, Stan. I'm glad to be with you. So, who was C. Van Woodward? Well, you know, I, uh, I wish you'd think after writing a 500-page book on him, I could come out with a with a very concise answer. <laughs> but that's why it's, the book's 500 pages long. <laughs> um, well, he was a you know he was a very uh, you know enigmatic figure in many many ways. Uh, I mean, he was brilliant um, and uh, uh, committed to to you know and 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 a real believer in 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 his principles and he stood by him his entire life. He uh, he managed to sort of, in my view, revolutionize the. Uh, 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 the study of Southern history, certainly, but I would even say, you know, to to a great extent, the study of American history, or at least the the perspective on American history, because uh, much of what he wrote about uh, regarding the South, uh, uh, he he sort of used the the backdrop of American history uh, and the counterpoint between American and Southern history to sort of define. Uh, you know the, the southern regional identity, but also uh, as a means of getting a uh, drawing a, a tighter bead on on American national 
identity. And uh, his book uh, of essays, The Burden of Southern History, was published in 1960. Ironically, uh, uh, the pieces uh, really are, you know, the novelty uh, in the in the pieces uh, is is the, what the light they shed on on American national identity and character. Uh, I think even more so than what they say about the South. So, um, and I should have that. That's a point in the book I should have developed better because people have sort of asked about and questioned this subtitle of the book calling. Woodward, America's historian, but, and I should have made the stronger point about, you know, those, those writing as being indicative of where, uh, where he was going, because his writing after the 1950s was primarily, you know, not, I mean, he didn't really write monographs, even article monographs to speak of, um, but he wrote essays for, for a public audience and, uh, you know, most of those essays uh, were on broader concerns than simply concerns related to the South. So, so I would say from you know from the mid nineteen fifties on, he he certainly was uh, functioning as as America's historian, and he was just I I just think he stands apart uh, from any historian. Uh, who lived in the 20th century and any I'm aware of who are, who are living now in, in the amount of, of respect and influence he, he gained, not simply within the academy, but, uh, you know, outside it, because he was, he, he functioned as a, as a very engaged public intellectual. He was also uh, uh, an, an engaged activist uh, through, throughout his adult life, uh, taking up for uh, uh, you know black uh, equality, uh, uh, racial equality, uh, uh, avid uh, uh, warrior for inter- for racial integration, uh, a defender of labor, uh, the rights of labor, a defender of free speech and academic freedom, and uh, you know he and he remained all of those things to the very day he died. A native of Arkansas? He was, yes. He was from a part of Arkansas that was not particularly, uh, you know, uh, it, it was uh, it was Arkansas. I mean, it, it for that era. I mean, it, it mm-hmm. was a, a early, he was born in 1908. So mm-hmm. you know, they were still there having their, uh, you know, dealings with the Klan and, and you know, race relations were, were not, uh, not necessarily very peaceful or certainly not settled and uh, and he was born to to very straight-laced methodist uh, parents his his mother had been a teacher uh, but his dad his daddy was uh, had been a teacher to start with but became a school principal then the school superintendent and uh, but they you know they they never missed the, you know, if the door was open at the Methodist Church, they were there, and uh, and he sort of, you know, early on became kind of a, you know, he was not an openly rebellious child, uh, but he began to push back against, uh, you know, not not only against their, their kind of formal religious beliefs, but the uh, 
against their their sort of acquiescence to the status quo in terms of, of, of race relations. He just couldn't understand how his father could keep silent. And he'd see things like the uh, the, the head of the local uh, clan coming you know coming into the Methodist church to make a donation uh, during services, and the pastor, you know, accepting it gratefully and uh, it just kind of blew his mind that his that his daddy and the other so-called decent white folk in the community could conscience that so uh, he uh, you know he was, he was sort of a quiet rebel and and you know he, he's like you know he's like a he was the school superintendent's kid which is probably just pretty close to being the preacher's kid you know, <laughs> you, 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 know you got all eyes on you and uh, you know if you screw up, your, your, your daddy is going to definitely hear about it. And um, and so he, I think he, you know, he kind of, he, he was not close to his father. It's really kind of sad because his father was such a gentle soul and, uh, um, you know, was just, he was, he was doing his very best. I mean, Woodward came to realize that if his father had done you know, all the things he wanted him to do when Woodward was a teenager, he, you know, he'd spoken out that, you know, he'd have lost his job. They'd have had no place to live, probably been run out of the, out of the community. Uh, but sadly, I don't think it, that really registered with him in time for him to tell his dad that. And uh, yeah, his dad then, you know, he his the, the most influential uh, figure during during Woodward's youth was his uncle Comer, for whom he was named, who was uh, a sociologist and the dean of men at Emory. And Uncle Comer arranged for for uh, Woodward's uh, dad to come to Emory, get a master's there, and then helped him get a job as dean of Emory Junior College, which was you know uh, out at Oxford. I mean, it was uh, it was. Uh, still, then this is after Emory has moved into Decatur. So, mm -hmm. uh, but his dad never, you know, he he was just not. He was just sort of like a. He, if he had been a quarterback, they would call him a game manager, and uh, uh, he was not much for innovation. And so that that job didn't work out, and he wound up sort of just teaching as what would be called today an adjunct at various schools in Atlanta, Georgia State, Oglethorpe, Georgia Tech, and. Uh, not a very, you know, not a very fulfilled life, I don't think. And and Van went to school, went to undergraduate school where? He went to Henderson Brown College uh, in uh, Arkadelphia, Arkansas, for for the first two years, and uh, and then uh, he transferred. I'm I'm sure with the at the urging and encouragement of uh, his uncle Comer, he transferred to Emory. Uh, at the same, uh, he, he arrived earlier, but his, his family shows up a few months after he, he, he gets there and his father enrolls in the master's program. And, and his mother, I think, had, had not really completed her, her bachelor's degree. So there was a point at which there, all three of them were enrolled in Emory, uh, at the, at the same time in the, mm -hmm. in the late twenties. And, uh, um, but, but he, uh, he graduated from Emory in 1930 with a a the first bachelor's degree ever granted Emory ever granted in philosophy, which was mostly a function of the fact that he just happened to have accumulated enough credits and 
philosophy because he didn't really, he was not focused at all. He just, he, he took a better liking to, uh, liking to uh, philosophy than anything else, even though he, he, you know, he had shown at, you know, from way back in the high school days that he, he was an avid reader and, you know, just, just really interested in, in literature and, um, uh, and he continued to be that, uh, you know, even even though I don't think he quite found in in the classroom the stimulation uh, for his literary impulses that uh, he, which he actually found hanging out with uh, uh, the man who had become his lifelong friend, uh, Glenn Rainey, who was a uh, he was the debate coach and uh, had a degree in political science, and then there was a quite a gifted poet named Ernest Hartsock, who was, uh, who has his own little literary magazine. And they, so they would spend hours way into the night, you know, talking about new writers and old writers and, and, you know, uh, good writing and the principles of good writing. And so he got, you know, he, he sort of uh, avocationally got, got his understanding of literature uh, uh, enriched by what he was doing, you know, outside the the, the classroom at, at Emory, but he never really developed, uh, you know, a career interest while at Emory. Um, uh, he he just looked he looked into a lot of things, and and uh, one of them was just a job teaching in the English department at Georgia Tech, and. Uh, so he was doing that, and then he more or less had to be prodded uh, by uh, by one of his, uh, Dr. Will Alexander, who was head of the Committee on Interracial Cooperation, uh, who was extremely well-connected, and he got, he got Woodward a fellowship to go to study at Columbia to get a master's, and, but, but Woodward had to, it, it took almost a cattle prod to get him to go, and, and uh, and he went there with no idea of what he was interested in or wanted to do. And he, and he, he left there not much different, except that he had decided he, he wrote a master's thesis about uh, Thomas Heflin, who was a senator from uh, Alabama, who had just been ousted, actually, by the voters. Uh, and um, presumably he was the father of Howell Heflin, the later senator. Is yes. That correct. Okay. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, he was, of course, you know, the standard racist demagogue, but he's also quite the nativist. And uh, so uh, Woodward was was intrigued enough by his tactics as a demagogue and, you know, the the, the ways, you know, the, the psychological aspects of it. So he, he decided he was going to write a book about he, he had picked out seven other um uh, Southern demagogues by his definition, which included Tom Watson of Georgia. Um, and he was going to write uh, a book called Seven for Demos, which was, uh, you know, I don't know how many were ever figured out what the title was supposed to mean. But, <laughs> but um, uh, as, as time drew on, then he came back to uh, Emory, but he got more and more intrigued by the story of Watson, of course, was, a, you know, came across as a, as a a very rational, courageous, uh, outspoken advocate of the economic, for the economic plight of the Southern masses of both races uh, for in the in the 19th century. Uh, I mean, late 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and then 
sort of mysteriously uh, is transformed after uh, Watson was involved in, as a, in a very uh, unfortunate misadventure as uh, as the populist nominee for vice president uh, in 1896 when uh, uh, William Jennings Bryan was running against him and um, William McKinley and and uh, after that he uh, he came he kind of went silent for a few years when he came back he he was right into the whole business of, of race baiting and you know disfranchising blacks and advocating lynching and and he became then then he branched off into uh, uh, anti-Catholicism and anti-Semitism and just became a uh, you know, kind of the scourge of of uh, of, <laughs> of society, really in Georgia. Uh, even though he was a political kingmaker uh, from then until his uh, death in nineteen twenty two, but uh, so Woodward got really intrigued about uh, with 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 Watson's story, but he he approached it not as a historian because you know in nineteen even when he went to uh, he went to the University of North Carolina in 1934 to en enroll in the PhD program in history, but he only did so with an idea that he would get a, some kind of an assistantship that would give him enough income to tide him over while he finished up his book on on Watson. And he he approached the book on Watson more as a novelist might have than, than as a historian. He wanted to deliberately kind of created mystery and left questions unaddressed uh, with the idea that that the readers could use their imagination to uh, <laughs> help piece the story of uh, of uh, of Watson together and and uh, as it turned out you know he he left so much to the imagination that uh, people who reviewed the book couldn't really figure out what the main point was supposed to be they knew it was it was very well written and a com extremely compelling story uh, but they didn't really see what the interpretive meaning of the book might be. Um, and uh, uh, which Woodward professed, you know, it didn't bother him. But uh, uh, by the time he, he, he realized he, you know, he had, he had, he had resisted uh, learning. I mean, his, his goal was to actually be forced to learn as little as possible uh, in the way of history and, and during his graduate training. And he, you know, he, he should have by all rights have flunked his qualifying exams. And, uh, but, but he had, he turned up with that dissertation and, uh, he sent it off to McMillan a couple of months after he defended it. And that fall, he got a glowing letter back saying they wanted to not only wanted to publish it, but they didn't want him to change a thing about it, <laughs> uh, nor, nor cut it. Uh, and, uh, and it, and you know I mean it was a it was a, a you know for its flaws as a as a work of history in the standard sense I mean it was a it was a brilliant piece of work I mean the the imagery he was able to create and the the, the, the essence of the situations that he was able to capture were I mean it, it it showed you know considerable talent but but he finally realized after the book sold only. It's it's all fewer than six hundred copies first year in print, despite getting reviews in the New York Times and everywhere. Uh, so he realized he's going to have to just 
knuckle under and try to make a living teaching history and he needed to do that, he had to get, you know, get more serious about the stuff he wrote as, uh, as history. So uh, as luck would have it, uh, he was invited as to step in for somebody who had dropped down as the author of uh, volume nine of the, the, the relatively new history of the South series. That was a combined effort of uh, University of Texas and the University of uh, Louisiana U State, Louisiana University uh, Press, uh, State Press. And uh, so um, that became, that book became Origins of the, New South, which was was just a you know magisterial kind of, I mean he wrote a he wrote a narrative uh, or a synthesis of a period that few people had written about even even in its narrow aspects. Mm-hmm. He he created this broad overarching narrative of of you know how Reconstruction was overthrown and the white supremacy reestablished and the old uh, you know, uh, old elites, old planter elites gave way to the kind of mercenary uh, uh, New South booster types. And, and uh, I'm, you know, I mean, it was, uh, you know, it's, it's a book that, you know, pe- people still assign graduate students uh, uh, today. And, and it was, you know, exhaustively researched. He started it in, in 1939 and then, then he got interrupted by, he, he served in the Navy three years during World War II. And then, uh, and then by the time he came back, there were all these new archives were opening with all these new paper collections that hadn't been there when he started the book. So, so it took him, you know, it took him basically until uh, 1951 to finish the book. And by that time he had spun off um, Reunion and Reaction, which was a, a book focused on, the uh, compromise of 1877 which which was you know ostensibly marked the the end of republican reconstruction um in the south and coincided with the removal of the final federal troops uh stationed assigned uh, to the south so um so he had he had written you know that that many had already he published uh, three books uh that were all you know, revisionist in one way or another. And then he, uh, he was, had always been, you know, committed to to racial justice. And he had, uh, um, in 1949, he had, he had uh, kind of just seized the initiative as chair of the program committee for the Southern Historical Association meeting in, in Williamsburg by, uh, by soliciting John Hope Franklin to be the, become the first black scholar ever to present a paper at the meeting, and pa- uh, pause right there just a minute before we because I want to talk. I want you to tell that story, but I just want to go back for a minute and ask you about Woodward as a writer because one of the things you talk about that I found very interesting I didn't know, and I'm I'm guessing most people did not know is that he really wanted to be a writer first, right? Primarily, he wanted to be in the in the in the uh, in the vein of, say, Tom Thomas Wolfe, right? That he really wanted to be a writer who made his living as a writer. Yeah, I would. I, I think he probably, uh, although he said early on that trying to work on Watson showed uh, showed him the shortcomings of literature as opposed to uh, the shortcomings of biography as opposed to literature. Mm-hmm. But I think he really env- envisioned himself becoming 
kind of like a, a, a popular biographer. Uh, and, and I don't mean popular in the sense of superficial and, you know, quickly, hurriedly done, but, but you know, a, a, a very thoughtful. Yeah, like popular. Douglas Southall Freeman, for instance, in the 1930s, right. exactly. who, made his, exactly. who made his living as a writer. Right, yeah. yeah. And so he was hoping he could do that. Uh, mm-hmm. And so he was looking as soon as he finished Tom Watson. He, he was he was thinking about he might write a book on Eugene V. Debs and thought it was books on other people. But when he saw that uh, his book on Watson had sold only 560 copies, he realized that, uh, you know, he was not going to be able to make a living, you know, just writing biographies. And that that's what sort of turned him into a historian. But he never lost that. I mean, he took he took pains Mm-hmm. in origins to to you know not be the novelist writing a history i mean he 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 worked harder at, at clarity and and precision and tying things together uh but he always wanted to to be uh a writer i mean he he, he would have uh, uh he it was a term coined well after his time but he would have, uh, 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 what he really wanted to do was write sort of creative nonfiction. And uh, I think you, you know, when you go back to the, to his work, what he did with the, the Mary Borkin Chestnut Diaries, you see that, that, you know, he takes these mishmash of various editions of that diary and he, and he sort of just picks and chooses the way he constructs the, you know, the, the narrative and he leaves out stuff that doesn't doesn't really fit into the story he wants to tell about Mary Chestnut. So he was he was using, you know, and uh some of that creative license in in producing a book that, you know, wound up winning the Pulitzer uh, Prize in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was um yeah that that impulse was always very, very strong in him. I wanted to ask you, too, before we get deeper into it, well, two questions. First, your research obviously is is very deep and thorough. You spent hours and hours and, and months in the Woodward Papers at Yale going through all of his correspondence. I, and we all as graduate students had to read. I remember reading for Bud Bartley's class at Georgia. That's where I read Origins the first time. Right. Did, did you reread all of his books in preparation for writing this book? Because you give a thorough analysis of all of his books. Well, I, I really, I really, you know, like as you say, I mean, I read, I read the four, first four monographs uh, uh, as a graduate student, mm-hmm. uh, and but I had I went back and and revisited them all. Uh, I had previously written a, an article about origins about uh, you know 20 years ago a little more so but anyway uh so i went back and 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 kind of reread them thinking in terms of um you know not just the content of the book but but you know what what, what connecting threads there might be and or or you know what what evolution in his in his approach uh that i might be able to to discern so yeah i did and uh um, do they hold up for you? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. The uh, uh, I don't I don't think I really changed anything. I had to uh, 
I had to say about, I mean, I, 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 uh, the thing I changed the most in terms of, it changed the most in terms of my impression was, um, well, the, you know, from reading his correspondence uh, from his earlier days. And uh, I, I, I understood what he was doing with Tom Watson was not, uh, you know, he was not really trying to write a re revisionist study of populism, which is what he later said. He thought he, he was he was trying to do. I mean, he was he was really just, as he said, trying to tell Tom Watson's story and in the most compelling way. But even so, in order to do justice to Watson, he had to do better justice to the populace because the standard, in, you know, take on the populace then where they were just a bunch of lunatics who who got you were just trying to get in the way of the redeemers and the new South crowd who truly had a vision you know, for the, for the South salvation. Um, but, um, uh, you know, otherwise I, uh, uh, you know, I, they, they, uh, they, they managed to fit together pretty, pretty well the way I had envisioned that they, that they might. I wound up uh, going, when I went back into um the burden of Southern history, which I'd also read, but I, I reread all that. Um, the um, I, I realized too that what he was saying about in the two two major uh, essays in the, in the burden of Southern history, the the search for a central theme and the irony of Southern history, that he was talking about the South's uh, peculiar past as the real key to its regional identity and not its racial system. Uh, he was, of course, refuting U.B. Phillips' idea that the struggle to maintain white supremacy was the central theme of Southern history. Uh, so he was saying in these essays that, you know, it's the South's distinctive past that sets it apart, uh, you know, and it's not it's not the, the, the just the narrow focus on on uh, enslaving and then resubjugating black people. Um, that that defines you know the people of the South. So um, so it you know it all actually the more I read the, the uh, uh, yeah, I mean it did come together more uh, in the, in the more broad in the broader sense. Mm -hmm. Two things about Woodward as a person before we keep talking about his books and his scholarship that that I was struck with. Um, you were about to start talking about his efforts really to integrate the Southern Historical Association and how he did that uh, with John Hope Franklin in the late 1940s and 50s. Um, I was struck by the fact that his racial mores were so very different from his fellow Southerners. I mean, Woodward was a Southerner. He was born in the South. He considered himself a Southerner all of his life. His research and writing focused on the South. And yet, for instance, his racial mores were very different than E. Merton Coulter's. Who was yes. a colleague and a contemporary? He was born in North Carolina, taught at the University of Georgia. They worked, uh, and you mentioned culture several times in talking about the Southern. How did you account for the fact? I mean, you mentioned some of his upbringing, but how do you account for the fact that he came out of the same place as so many other scholars like Coulter, and yet he was very different in the way he thought about race? Well, I think he was um, he was very different in the way he thought. Period. I think just because he had, I mean, he was basically um, two thirds self-educated, if you want to get right down to it, because, you know, he had read every dang book in the library and where in Moralton, Arkansas, where 
he, he was living when he was in high school and then read every book in the library at, at Henderson Brown College. And uh, he had been a debater, you know, he was uh, um, heavy into the debating society and, and uh, he, he just was a, a, a thinker and uh, he just did, you know, he, he, he sort of never met a nostrum. He didn't want to sort of pick apart and, 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 and think about, you know, what's the basis of this? How are we, how are we doing this? And, uh, you know, and when he got to Atlanta, that was his first time ever uh, encountering black people, uh, you know, certainly educated black people on, a, on anything like a remotely, you know, standard footing or, you know, equal footing. And, uh, uh, he he began to see that, that you know these these people were, were you know there, there was nothing about their race that per se that that um, really you know was uh, remarkable. I mean they they you know they were just human beings uh, who you know had talents their own had uh, you know were capable of, of learning and and helping others learn and and. Uh, and of course, his experience when he does go to Columbia in New York, where he rubs shoulders with some of the members of the Harlem Renaissance, simply reinforces uh, simply reinforces that. But he, you know, he was he also was you know I this is something I, I wish I had done more to check out. But I, I just wonder if he was also kind of influenced by the uh, I mentioned. Uh, um, in the conclusion, I think that that you know his views on race as basically a, a social construct rather than a you know arising from anything tangible or or scientific uh, it, it were were very similar to to the the, the findings that were coming out of uh, uh, Franz Boas's you know students in anthropology. Uh, uh, Margaret Mead, Zora Neale Hurston, particularly with the sound, um, that that you know that that uh, uh, there were there were human traits that were universal uh, um, that had nothing to do with you know they were present in all human beings and all human societies, regardless of the color of the skin of the people in those societies. Um, so I think you know that that he he stuck with that. Um, that that principle, um, and he, you know, he he admitted that uh, he, because which made him naive at first because when he would encounter racism or just a seemingly like you know coming out of nowhere effort to to you know subjugate blacks or, or repress them or or intimidate them, and he couldn't find any economic reason rationale behind it he was he was extremely puzzled he he just you know it because it just wasn't in his mindset to appreciate that whatever its its historical origins you know racism could become you know a visceral emotion you know reaction for uh, for whites and um uh i think that's uh you know that's that um he, uh, he he struggled a little bit um, with that, and uh, and he couldn't, you know, he because he did believe that 
you know, the, the, uh, the more enlightened you became and, uh, you know, the less threatened whites would feel by blacks as whites moved up the socioeconomic scale, uh, the, the less racist they would be. And so um, it was kind of natural then for him to say, well, segregation was it was all at, done at the demand of the of the rednecks in the uh, in the countryside. Uh, just to pacify them, and uh, and of course later researchers would show, uh, you know, that, that that definitely was not the not the truth. That you know, some of the arch segregation, real architects of segregation as it emerged were were from the uh, you know the upper and middle classes and uh, who who approached it, you know, with with aims in mind. They they approached it with with economic aims in mind, but they saw it actually as a, as the most reasonable means of stabilizing, you know, the labor situation in the South and, and uh, an economy where whites could no longer completely control the distance between them and blacks, uh, spatially or socially. So, um, so, you know, he, uh, but, but he, you know, that was, Writers like John Sell and Joel Williamson, you know, and others came, you know, made those arguments much. Howard Rabinowitz much later than mm-hmm. than Woodward offered his. So Woodward, um, the thing that really probably brought him into public consciousness in a way that he hadn't before with the, any of his books was the strange career of Jim Crow. Talk about that a little bit. Well, would you, would you agree with that? By the way, yes. that, that oh, was yeah. a book. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. it was. Uh, you know, it was his. Uh, from the academic standpoint, it was by far his weakest, weakest book. Yeah, but it, uh, you know, it was so timely because it came. Woodward had uh, had been approached. He was teaching in Tokyo uh, in 1952, and he he first been approached by the the. NAACP Legal Defense Fund about doing some research acting as an expert in their they were a case that would eventually become Brown versus Board of Education and uh, and uh, so uh, he uh, and he agreed um, but he also at that point said you know I, I don't really want to do uh, anything that's going to compromise my you know, my standing as a, a detached, objective historian. Uh, so I'm going to, you know, if I can, if you'll accept that, you know, what I'm going to give you might not be tailored precisely to your argument, then I'll do it. And 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 what he gave him was, in fact, I mean, he, he did, I can't see that he did any extra work at all. He, he simply took a, a part of a chapter out of the, um, or out of uh, reunion and reaction, is, and how the northern economic interests were were ultimately in league with with southern whites to to sort of dismantle reconstruction and and uh, allow the resubjugation of black people in the in the south, and that was his report for the NAACP lawyers. But I think by the time the case finally percolated all the way through. He realized that that you know he, he felt badly that he didn't really provide more input 
and and give them more to work with than than he had. And so when uh, you know when the decision came down, he seemed to sort of say, "Well, I didn't do really what I should have to make this decision happen, but now that it happened, I want to be sure that it's followed up on and and it, and the the, uh, the order is carried out and succeeds." And so he he found that opportunity when he was invited to deliver a series of lectures in September 1954 at the University of Virginia. And uh, those lectures became the book, uh, The Strange Career of Jim Crow, which he admitted almost, you know, in the document uh, itself that that he was writing uh, primarily to persuade people that the, the kind of ensconced idea uh, not only in in the in the public mind, but in the scholarly mind that that uh, you know segregation was so deeply embedded in Southern culture as a so-called folk way that uh, there was no real feasible means of, erad- of eradicating it by governmental intervention. And um, you know, so you've got you got you, know, you got. Henry Billings Brown, uh, William Graham Sumner, you know, very distinguished uh, uh, sociologists who, who believe this, and you know that becomes the pretext for the, the Plessy versus Ferguson verdict in 1896, upholding uh, you know, separate but equal facilities. Uh, uh, we're just saying that you know, you know I mean, where the the actual court opinion just said you know you can't really do anything about racial. Uh, sentiments that are this deeply embedded. So, so he wanted to 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 kind of uh, strike out at that notion by by saying that you know all this is not uh, this is a very historically uninformed perspective that uh, in fact there was no real rigid uniform pattern of segregation in the South until the Southern states began to pass the uh, Jim Crow so-called Jim Crow laws mandating segregation in public accommodations. Uh, in the 1890s, and up until that time, there had been a period of uh, relative fluidity uh, in black-white interactions in the South. And uh, his problem was, of course, that he had settled on this argument, this topic, very late, with just a few months to go before he had to deliver the lectures. So he didn't really have time to to scoop up much evidence uh, for his argument. And, and what he could offer were, were stuff, was stuff that mostly he had he had already mentioned in uh, in origins and and picked up a few more examples from the work of George Tyndall and a couple maybe newspaper editorials. So he makes this massive argument that that kind of upends the traditional thinking in the academic and public realm about the origins of segregation. And he's only got eight sources for it. And uh, and those sources, as it turned out, which, which of course, I had to go dig out because um, he, they, he, the book was not footnoted. But he had, he had uh, you know, uh, most of those sources, he had gone in and, and cherry-picked little tidbits, little snippets of quotations that seemed to support his argument about fluid race relations prior to the Jim Crow laws to the exclusion of, of similar statements offsetting 
you know, that that opinion within the same paragraph, uh, <laughs> you know, or on the same page of the source. So, um, I mean, he had basic he had basically rigged the evidence to uh, to support his uh, support his argument. And uh, and this didn't, you know, matter so much to popular readers because, I mean, it, it, it was a very short book, beautifully written and to. Uh, you know, and, and nobody knew. I mean, nobody really knew for sure uh, the details of the history of segregation because nobody had written about it. You know, I mean, it, you know, he, here again, it, it, just he had done in Origins, he had written a synthesis on a topic or a period uh, where there, you know, there were just no significant individual research monographs to build them. So, uh, uh, so it, you know the book was was, was well written. It was brief, and uh, as the civil rights crisis heated up with the Birmingham, I mean, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Little Rock, and then Birmingham, and uh, you know the the interest in the topic was such that uh, suddenly the sales of the book just took off, and uh, Oxford couldn't print them fast enough, um, and the uh, so it went through multiple. Uh, editions and uh, it became a because it was again you know it was excessively written and and brief it was an ideal book for classroom adoption so <laughs> you know university professors and even high school teachers adopted it for their courses and uh, and so it became you know one of the most widely read books uh, on uh, American race relations ever ever published, and I would argue it's certainly the most widely read one in the 20th century, um, and eventually went on to sell, you know, in the neighborhood of a, of a million new copies. And if you think about how many library copies and how many used copies were read, you know, by students in class after class after class, you know, there's no telling how many people actually read that book. And it's safe to say, I think that, uh, and you go into this in your book pretty pretty carefully, but it, it's the entire thesis has pretty much been overthrown at this point, right? Right. None of yeah. it holds up today. Um, it's really interesting because you talk about the fact that this was based on very thin research, and um, it, one of the things that struck me throughout the book, uh, to the point that I wrote this down at the beginning, at, at the end, it's this way of summing up. It, it, here's a guy who had a national reputation, hence your subtitle, America's Historian. And I think part of your subtitle is also based upon the fact that from the mid-50s on, he is really actively a public historian, right? He is writing in popular magazines and newspapers and reviewing books and writing essays. Um, there's a quote here I want to read. You said, we um, we read to recall that he had never been by nature an avid hunter and gatherer of primary historical information from the outset of his indifferent pursuit of a PhD in history. He had made it abundantly clear that as his classmates readily confirmed, he was more interested in crafting and massaging ideas than in simply acquiring more facts. His, his really his, uh, his, his impact came through reaching a large public at a time when the civil rights movement is going on and then Vietnam is going on that he's really trying to make sense of the present through the past. Would you, you would agree with that, right? That's, that's primarily yeah. the impact after let's say origins, which was his last real work of primary research, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, I, I, so 
he uh, he revolutionized the study of Southern history to, to the extent that, uh, or in the sense that, uh, really, it, uh, when he, he when he shows up uh, uh, for graduate school at Chapel Hill in 1934, I mean, E. Merton Coulter, who's the you know arch racist who believed in the old uh, fire and brimstone dunning view of Reconstruction as a time of, of you know, just outright oppression of of white Southerners. Uh, I mean, he he was the first president of the Southern Historical Association. Coulter was so. So you know the establishment uh, historical or body of historiography was really about it was about defending the South uh, from going all the way back to to the you know why the South seceded um, and then to to you know the uh, kind of taking up the South's cause uh, after the oppression of um, of Reconstruction and. And sort of, you know, saying that that what was worked out there, and it, it, it unfortunately had to involve taking the vote away from black people. It had to involve coming up with some sort of system of racial control. But this was really the, you know, this was really the only feasible means of restabilizing Southern society and trying then to restore the the economic fortunes of the. Of the region, so so he was. Uh, yeah, so when Woodward comes in, you know, they they had been using the past as a vehicle for sort of defending the status quo, and Woodward looks back at the past and says, "Well, none of this had to be this way. Uh, you know, it it was not foreordained. There there were alternatives to this. There were alternatives to the way the 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 South's economy uh, could have been structured. The po- the populists were talking about that. There were alternatives to the way uh, the racial system may have been structured. The populists were also talking about that. Um, it was it was this was a man made uh, for for the purpose of ser- of serving uh, a, a particular group's interests. This system it's not it was not fabricated on the idea. That this is best the best thing for everybody in the South, because it you know it clearly wasn't. So so yeah he yes he did and 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 of course that was you know I mean he 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 certainly did the study of Southern history a, a, a tremendous good turn in doing that because he sort of you know opened up the field to uh, and inspired challenges to to the existing orthodoxy on any number of fronts but the but the but there was a downside in in this focus on the present and that is and, and which comes through in strange career most clearly in that you know in order to you know to make something timely and relevant that you have to sort of stretch the evidence and and maybe you know beyond that, stretch the meaning of of uh, of what you see or what you're you, you're telling us you see uh, to adapt to what you see the needs of the present being, and uh, and and certainly Woodward's values. You know, I mean, his I'm, I'm, I I I know he had a you know a good supportable rationale for thinking. Uh, you know the strange career of Jim Crow's thesis about 
the relative recent origins of, of segregation were was a was a worthy, a, a socially worthy, a morally worthy, but but he he also didn't you know he didn't contemplate what might happen if uh, contrary to the message the optimism he was sowing in in the book about getting getting rid of segregation in pretty short order. If it if it dragged on and on and on and on and on, what were people going to think, and what were they going to know? You know, he he may well have inspired people to go up and you know and join the SCLC or SNCC or or just take part in protests or sign petitions or whatever. But he had you know his book offered no answers uh, for you know Birmingham and Selma and why you know what. Only four percent of uh, black kids were were going to school with white kids. You know, ten years after, more than ten years after after the Brown decision, mm -hmm. and, and uh, so it it and and that's a problem. You know, when you when you when you write as a historian, so focused on on what you see as the primary concerns of the present, um, you you lose sight of the fact. That the present won't be the present very long. It'll soon be the past, and there'll be a new present, which have which will have likely, you know, different concerns, and and your your work may not speak to that present at all, but it'll still be on the library shelf, at, you know, for people to read, and <laughs> and and they they won't benefit from it nearly as much as if. You know, you had taken a kind of longer view and, and presented alternatives on, well, this is the way it looks now, but, the, but you know, it might look differently, you know, if this. Right? Uh, so I think that's the problem. And, you know, that's a debate as, as, as you and anybody who keeps up with kind of what's going on in history knows. I mean, yeah, it's like that debate about presentism in, in historical writing has never gone away. And, it you know, it's, it's flared up just in the you know, in recent months, again, about, you know, what the, the historian's obligation is to the, to the present, as opposed to the, uh, as to the past. And, uh, and, and, it, and it's a very, I, mean, I think it's a very fruitful debate, uh, uh, because it, it makes people think about what they're doing, regardless of whether they, they think, well, I still, see a way to serve the needs of the present here in writing about this or 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 they basically are saying well yeah i just really want to figure out what happened and um and because i think people are not really clear on that uh so i mean you know it's, it's just many ways it's like it's like all the stuff he wrote in his early the books he wrote i mean the, the uh it was like the uh it was like manna from heaven for the uh, for the historical profession because people made careers out of testing Woodward's arguments and theses in his in his early books. I mean, it might, I mean, you, you, the, the 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 amount of work going on at any one time <laughs> in Southern history in the 1970s that was related to something C. Van Woodward wrote would would boggle our minds if we were able to calculate it. I'm sure. Uh, well, and to that point, one of the things that it, it not only was it his scholarship and the things that he wrote that made him such an influence, but as you point out and talk just a little bit about this, he also trained 
at both Johns Hopkins and Yale, some of the most prominent historians of the second half of the 20th century. Oh, without doubt. Yeah. I mean, you know, there, there were, there were, uh, there were, you know, mentors who, who trained more PhDs and, uh, uh, and, and, uh, you know, a lot of them good PhDs. Uh, but, but, uh, you know, I, I can't come up with any way to, to com- compare a group of students uh, uh, mentored by the same person uh, who who just managed to have so much impact and and you know kind of do you know sort of following his footsteps in many ways and sort of pushing pushing the boundaries of exploration and and inquiry out uh, uh, outward uh, the way way Woodward students did. Mm-hmm. Um. One of the things that you talk about, and you mentioned it right away, we all experienced it. Here, here's this this brilliant writer, as you said, a man who just really pioneered the study of Southern history in the 20th century, turned it in a different direction, away from the Dunning School and the white supremacist, the U.B. Phillips School, who all of us read his work. He sort of had this towering, legendary stature, and then the first time you heard him speak, it just all fell apart. He was, I mean, you talk about this. He was notoriously a horrible speaker. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I don't, you know, I, that one of my favorite quotes in the book is from his, his advisor, Howard Beale, telling him to, you know, he was, he was teaching, by that time he was teaching at, at uh, in California at Scripps College. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but he was teaching small, small. He's teaching women in very small classes, and and uh, Bill told him to go out. Even now, go out behind the barn and practice uh, speaking, so that you don't sound like you got a mouthful of mush. Um, it, which, but but Woodward just was just whether. I mean, that, that was you know, it, uh, as I mentioned in the book, you know, that was that was the comment on his speaking from his days at Henderson Brown College forward, and. And whether, um, you know, whether he at some point, you know, I, I, you know, whether it just became sort of his, you know, by gosh, you know, this is this is me. I'm wearing it. You know, this is, this is my badge of honor. You know, if if if, if you're worried about what I, if you, you expect me to spoon feed what I'm saying to you, um, you know, while I'm saying it to you and to dramatize it and and draw you in. Then you know you, you know forget that. If you're that interested, you can just read this because almost everything I say is going to be published anyway. And um, I mean, but it, but it really was it, it it really was true. I mean, uh, the most brilliant, in my opinion, the most brilliant piece he ever wrote was the Irony of Southern History, uh, which was his presidential address in the Knoxville meeting. But but not only was that meeting disrupted because they had to find a hotel that would serve black members at the presidential banquet and they had to move it. But, um, but, but we were just got up and read in his kind of mumbling monotone, this brilliant and thoughtful, <laughs> uh, you know, so timely uh, look at, at, you know, where the South stood relative to the rest of the country and relative to the rest of the world and what could be divine from that, that would be a benefit to, to the rest of the country. Uh, and it just sort of, you know, when people started noticing it, when it finally showed up in the Journal of Southern History and they started reading it and thinking, wow, look at this. Uh, so 
uh, I mean, that was just, you know, that, that was just the way he was. And he, uh, you know, he never, I never, yeah. I never saw him make much effort to be, you know, be clear, uh, clearer than he was naturally. Uh, anytime I ever heard him smoke, which is, which is turned out to be a good many times. So, and there are many different, uh, we, we're close to being out of time. And there are many other things in this book we could talk about that are so fascinating. Uh, his, um, his controversies with other historians like Herbert Aptecker and, and Eugene Genovese, um, which are all fascinating and I think really key insights into the historical profession at that period. Um, but but I did want to ask you, did you did you have a personal friendship with C. Van Woodburn? No, uh, I was in his company a number of times and, uh, you know, he was always polite to me. Uh, but, um, you know, he he seemed to sort of project kind of, you know, if it's all right with you, I just sort of, you know, like to reserve this little space around me here. And, mm-hmm. and so, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, like everybody else, I, you know, I couldn't help it. I had to say, well, you know, I couldn't begin to tell you how much your work has meant to me, uh, you know, which of course is, is how many billion times did he hear that? But, uh, and he was always, you know, he's quite gracious, but yeah, but yeah. he, uh, uh, you know, he, you know, we we never got really into discussions of like my work, and and this this was after I you know I'd written several things that I knew he had to have known of that related to his work. Yeah, but you know that just uh, I just didn't I just couldn't I'm you know I guess I guess because I'm just an old country redneck myself I guess I just couldn't you know I had my <laughs> own kind of pride and. Yeah. Besides, you know, most of the time I was selling around him long enough before somebody else would come running up to, to glad hand him and, uh, and yeah. you know, try to monopolize him. So uh, uh, that, that that probably has something to do with it. But uh, one well, of the, know. yeah, go ahead. We were Woodward was actually uh, in 1997. I was uh, you know, participating in a, um, a subset of the uh, European American Studies Association called, which is actually called the Southern Studies Forum, and we're meeting on an island off the coast of Denmark. And Woodward, who is that's ninety seven, so he would have been it was he'd have been eighty eighty nine years old, eighty eight, yeah, yeah. almost eighty nine. Yeah, and uh, uh, he, he had taken the red eye from Kennedy, uh, and you know he was leading us up the hill. We had to take a train in a ferry from Copenhagen to get to this island. And, you know, he was leading everybody up the hill, carrying his bags. You know, and, uh, <laughs> and he was, I mean, you know, he was, he was, uh, you know, very, I mean, he was, it's very congenial. I mean, yeah. You know, and he was, con- I mean, he wasn't uncongenial to me either, but uh, I think, I think he may have actually enjoyed that a little more because they weren't, most of the people there were actually literary people. Mm-hmm. And, he didn't have as many people who were, you know, looking to suck up to him uh, as a historian. Uh, so, so he may have enjoyed that uh, occasion a little more. The field of writing biographies about historians is not a wide one. Um, this book is was is was needed. Um, a lot of other books. I I, I wondered, and you know, one of the things I wrote is, uh, you know, uh, is it time for a, a biography of Coulter? I mean, that's a whole different ballgame. I know his papers are there at Georgia. Um, did you have to clear the field? Was there anybody else interested in doing this? I know you worked on this for 20 years. Was there anybody else who said, man, I can't wait to get into the Woodward papers that you had to deal with? Well, uh, 
Sheldon Hackney, who was, mm-hmm. of course, one of Woodward's favorite students, uh, was, uh, I, I was working on this beforehand, before I learned that I, I got I got to know Sheldon relatively late in my career, uh, and his too. Um, but but he was he was scratching around to begin a a, a biography, uh, and of course Jack wrote John Herbert Roper had written the mm-hmm. uh, Van Woodward Southerner, which appeared in the in the late eighties, uh, I think as I recall. Yep. Um, but that was before I mean, Woodward was still alive, and. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Jack got to, you know, he got to interview him, which was really good. He did, got some great stuff out of him in interviews, but uh, he didn't really have access to his papers and he didn't, you know, he was not, that was just not the, at that point, you know, you're not going to write a, mm-hmm. a, you know, really say uh, some of the critical things that, that you would say after, uh, yeah, after he had passed. And uh, so, um, so the, really, you know, there, there was no, uh, you know, I, I mean, if, if there's anybody else working on it, I mean, people had done you know, dissertations on certain aspects of Woodward's work, and but it was it was you know really on his work. Um, I mean, it was, you know, there, there just wasn't uh, you know his 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 correspondence. He I've, I've never read anybody's correspondence uh, who I mean that was the only way you would get much in the way of. Woodward, the person coming through, was, I mean, it came through in his letters to, you know, particularly to his friends, um, more so than in any any interview I ever read with him or 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 anything anybody would tell me. As I said in the introduction, the first way I could tell someone actually had spent a lot of time around Woodward and knew him, you know, better than most would be uh, uh, the person who was quickest to say, you know. Beyond the point, I don't, I don't know him all that well. I mean, you know, I mean that was yeah, and, yeah. And he, you know, he. I think that he was okay with that. I mean, he, but he, but he had not. That's not to say he didn't feel dearly for, for the people who were his friends, like like David Potter and Richard Hofstadter. I mean, he, he grieved terribly at at losing them, uh, and uh, but but it's just that's how he was. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you, you've done a, a, a wonderful job, I think, of balancing his humanity with his scholarship in a way that is, is uh, in, in this kind of biography of, a, of an intellectual as he was, it's, it's unusual. You talk about the suffering when his son died, when his wife died, his friends, as you just mentioned. You really bring his humanity out away, in a way that is, is really eye-opening for people who want to know about that side of, of the people, mm-hmm. that, uh, kind of our intellectual heroes. So mm-hmm. um, I wish we could talk for another hour about this. But Jim, Jim Cobb, thank you so much for coming on here and talking about your book. Deeply appreciated. Well, thank you. And thank you for all your generous comments, Stan. I I really enjoyed getting to speak with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. The hardest working producer and engineer in show business, the czar of our Tallahassee office, as well as the captain of the GHS camel jumping team, is our very own Brendan Cannonball Crellin. Our director of communications and the GHS ambassador from Long Island One Man Damn Yankees fan club is Keith Pinstripe Stregero. The GHS Empress of the Historical Marker, Don't Call Them Monuments Division, is Elise 135 Words Butler. The captain of the GHS Italian Wine Tasting Team is Rebecca Beerstein Bratina. 
Our GHS Director of Bean Counting is Greg Cancel Checks Durkin, assisted by our Accounts Payable Administrator, Imelda Checks. The Director of the GHS Civil War Reenactors Club is Nate Stonewall Jackson Peterson. Our Off the Deaton Path Fact Checker is Ella Fino. Our Director of Employee Loyalty is Upton Leftus. The Off the Deaton Path Bungee Jumping Instructor is Hugo First. Our Staff Layoff Specialist is Harry Verderci, assisted by Layoff Counselor Oscar LaVista. Our Russian intern this year is Igor Beaver. Our staff director of Three Stooges Studies is Lee Iopoka. Dr. Todd Gross's personal eBay specialist is Selma Junkoff. And our off the eaten path martini mixer, as always, is Olive Twist. You can find our podcast anywhere you can find podcasts. You can find out everything about the Georgia Historical Society at georgiahistory.com and the Georgia History Festival at georgiahistoryfestival.org. Be sure and like Off the Deaton Path on Facebook as well. Please also visit DeatonPath.GeorgiaHistory.com and check out dispatches from Off the Deaton Path, my blog, and similar strange career podcasts like this one. Stay safe, stay strong. I'm Stan Deaton with the Georgia Historical Society. As always, thank you for listening.